0: This is Yavar Maradi with another special Odyssey interview. My guest today is composer Bruce Broughton, who both knew Jerry and worked on some projects related to his output at various points in his career. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure.
0: I'd like to start out with your introduction to film music. And I was surprised to hear in an interview you did with John Burlingame for the Film Music Foundation that Kind of like most people, while you enjoyed movies growing up, you were not particularly drawn to movie music. And I was wondering, were there any exceptions to that, kind of which stood out to you as something different that demanded your attention more?
1: You know, the first time I remember thinking about the music in a movie that I was going to was The Ten Commandments, which I saw when it opened. I must have been 10 or 12, I don't remember. And it was done with a lot of fanfare, and and uh, C.B. DeMille came out on the stage, and you know on the film, and blah 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 blah. So I, I vaguely remember music being in that, but I was too young to really pay attention to it. Uh, the next time, of course, was Fantasia, which was all music, and I knew the music, and but I was more interested in the animation than I was in the music. I really wasn't too aware of music and films until I was in high school, and I went with a friend to see to see Spartacus, and even that which is a tremendous score, didn't come up on my screen so much as my friend's reaction to it because he knew about Alex North and um, he knew about his score. So whenever there was a score with Alex North in it, I tried to pay attention to it. Soon after that, probably about the time I was, I don't know, 17, 18, 19, I started becoming a little bit interested in music and films. It was never a big thing. I always watched movies to watch movies, uh, which I think is actually an advantage because When I was working in movies, I was always aware that people were not paying that much attention to what I was doing, and that if I did my job well, they would be more involved in the film than they would be in my score. So it's a good thing to listen to, I mean, as a composer of movie music, it's a good thing to listen to films and know what your place is in it. It's just, you know, it's a position of accompaniment, period. I think I started to really pay attention to it with the scores of uh, Jerry and the scores of Alex North.
0: Who was, of course, his mentor.
1: Yeah. And Jerry and also another one was Miklos Rosha because Miklos had those big scores, you know, those big religious scores. Um, And they were always really interesting. Alex North, his music was so incredible to me that I I had the impression that he was like, I mean, literally, I really thought he was about seven feet tall because his music was just so wonderful. And the first time I ever saw him, he was just a short little guy. I thought, well, that can't be Alex North. He's seven, seven feet tall. He's not, you know, that. With Jerry... I became aware of his music, I think, because of the creativity in it. But I couldn't tell you exactly when or how I got interested in it. But I do know for sure that I was not one of those film composers who grew up wanting to be a film composer because they heard the most wonderful music on the film and blah, 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 blah. I I just wanted to watch the movies. I just watched for entertainment. Uh, it was just later that I got to know all these people. As it turned out, I knew Miklos Rocha, sort of. I met him several times. I would at his funeral. I met Alex North once, and I knew Jerry, you know, sort of. Um, We weren't buddies, but I I knew him well enough to be able to talk and see him time to time, and he would, you know, talk.
0: What's the earliest Jerry Goldsmith score you remember noticing?
1: Um, I think it was My Man Flint. And I think the reason for that was because I was going to USC at the time, and I was taking a course in the cinema school that we used to refer to as Thursday Night at the Movies because it was a four-hour course put on by a uh, well-known film critic at that time, Arthur Knight. He would always show a new movie that was just about ready to be released, and he would bring somebody down who had worked on the movie to, to talk about it. My man, Flint, I can't remember who it was who came down to talk about it, it wasn't Jerry. But shortly after that, I remember he had done Sand Pebbles, and I had been on set of Sand Pebbles just briefly, so I was sort of curious the movie, and then when I found out that Jerry did it, I was really interested to see who he was and what he was, but as it turned out, he didn't end up coming to the uh, screening. So I would say My Man Flint, um, Lilies of the Field, Sand Pebbles, those were the early ones.
0: What was your connection to Hollywood growing up that allowed you to come in on set on some of these films?
1: I saw Sand Pebbles getting shot because I used to work for a couple of summers at a summer camp next to what was the, at that time the 20th Century Fox lot. They had a, um, a huge place, which is now a, a state park, but they had a huge place out in Malibu. And one night I and several other guys who were working at the camp went over and, and watched sand pebbles get shot. It was the scene when Steve McQueen got shot and they had to do it over and over and over and over and over again because the, uh, the bullets didn't explode like they were supposed to, kind of interesting. But I had look. I mean, I had no relationship to Hollywood at all. I mean, my family worked for the Salvation Army, which is about as far away as you can possibly be from Hollywood.
0: So, how did you find your way to that experience?
1: My uh, grandfather had a friend who had been a producer in in radio years before, which was, of course, no use to me as as uh, somebody trying to get out of college and get a job. But um, he was very nice. He he talked to me. I'd known him for a few years, and he gave me a, a few phone numbers of people to call. And one of the guys I talked to ended up being a man who managed the music department at CBS Television. A couple of months later, they hired me. But it turned out also that that same department with the same guy had about 10 years earlier hosted Jerry Goldsmith working in a similar position to what I was doing. So Jerry had begun in radio, I began in television. But there were a ton of Jerry Goldsmith scores that were around both the manuscripts and the recordings. And you know, I I got a whole earful of Jerry Goldsmith stories. And the first time I ever saw Jerry, I think he came—he came to do a spotting for some TV movie he was doing. And I remember he looked in the office and saw me, and I looked at him. And he, you know, it was just who's that kid? I'm sure that didn't come up on a screen at all. Uh, I used to go down and listen listen to him record. So I heard him do um, movies. I heard him do TV uh, movies. I looked at his music in the library. I mean, I had a. I had a good beginning. When I was starting my career, I had a good beginning of uh, Jerry Goldsmith's history.
0: Do you uh, recall any specific memories of going to one of his recording sessions?
1: Oh, yeah. You bet. There was a score that he did, which I've talked about a lot to students. Um, It was a movie called uh, The Brotherhood of the Bell. At that time, TV movies were just becoming all all the the new thing. And CBS had started a motion picture department. So the TV movies were called uh, Cinema Center, which is the name of the movie company, Cinema Center 100, meaning these 100-minute films. They were little films, but they decided because they were motion pictures for television that they were going to hire motion picture composers. So we had Jerry and uh, Lalo Schifrin and and Quincy Jones and guys like this come and do these movies. So Jerry did this one. Uh, the orchestra was 16 violins, four violas, no, 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 six violas, six cellos, two basses, one of whom was a jazz player, Ray Brown. He had one percussionist who was Shelly Mann, the jazz player. He had two keyboardists and he had an electric flute. There was this one cue that he did that absolutely knocked me off my socks. Uh, it was so friggin' brilliant. He had used, he, he combined jazz, 12 tone, Uh, Improvisation. I mean, it was just incredible. In it was that several years ago, I finally got a um, a CD of the score and I listened to it and I thought, yeah, that's nice. (laughs) It didn't hit me in the face. I forgive myself for that because at the time, what Jerry was doing was so completely different than what everybody else was doing. It was so aggressive, so connected to the film, so sympathetic to the film, so sensitive to the film that there was nobody even in second place. I walked in one time when he was recording a movie, The Reincarnation of Peter Proud. It was a very large studio, which has since been turned into the stage for um, uh, Entertainment Hollywood. Is that right? Yeah, Entertainment Tonight, which is easy. But anyway, it used to be a a huge, huge recording stage. And he had this orchestra there. I don't think I have ever heard an orchestra play so beautifully, play music that was so sensuous and so sensual with such craft and such technique and such elegance, as I heard on that day. There were two or three of us standing there from the CBS department. One of the guys who ran the department got really depressed. The other one got kind of um, taken out, but I I got excited. I thought, wow, if I just keep writing, maybe I can get to be that good too. I mean, it, it was so exciting. to the booth to listen to it, it wasn't nearly as good in the booth on the recording, and their friend and I went to see it as a movie, and it wasn't nearly as good in the movie, but on the stage, when it was live, it was spectacular. He was a tremendous orchestrator. No, I mean, he was was the guy. He's always been the guy, you know, as far as I'm concerned.
0: At what point did you decide you wanted to become a film composer yourself?
1: Actually, I never decided to be a composer when I was a kid. When I was a boy, as I mentioned, I wanted to be an animator. Um, But I had always studied music. I came from a really musical family. Everybody in my family played at least two instruments. Could sight read, could sing. You know, my brother was a professional trombone player and a composer. Tremendous trombone player. So I was taking piano lessons since I was a little kid. Finally, when I gave up the idea of being an animator, which was actually a good decision, because years later, I actually ran into some animators who were really good, and I probably would never have been that good. I decided to take music when I went to university because it was a—it was really the only thing I knew. And I decided to take composition because uh, I was already a pretty decent classical pianist, and I didn't want to study piano anymore. But I—I I was getting to be interested in composing, and I thought I should find out more about that. I can't say that I got a really great education at school in my composition, but. Uh, it was enough that I knew that when I ended up with a degree in composition, I was going to have to look for composition jobs. So one day I was driving down the street. I've told this story so many times. Some of your listeners will already know it. But I, I was driving down the street. I'm a young guy. I'm about 21 years old. And I'm listening to the radio. And the radio is getting me all excited. And as I tell people, in those days, music was really good on the radio. So I'm listening. To, I don't know what it was, some pop thing. And I was getting all excited. And then it hit me. That's what I want to do. I want to write music that makes people feel something just like this song was making me feel great. I want to write music that makes me feel something. And within a couple of seconds, I figured out what it was. I didn't want to be a songwriter because although I love the songs, um, I thought that the form was too short for what I wanted to do. I wanted to do writing on a bigger scale and I wanted to get as many people as possible in a room to listen to it. And I thought, oh, movies, I can do it in movies. So from that point on, I had an ambition and um, I was fortunate when I got out of school to be able to get this job at CBS which was a perfect ground for somebody who needed to learn all the stuff that he didn't know uh, when he was growing up. And um, I started composing when I was at CBS. By the time I went freelance, I got very quickly into doing television shows. And, uh, you know, that was, ba- that was basically it. So I was looking around always at how other people did this work. As I said, when I was at CBS, I had Jerry's scores to look at. I had a lot of other scores, too. I had Fred Steiner and Bernard Herman and guys like that. I had lots of stories to hear. I had lots of films to look at. It was a great apprenticeship, absolutely a great apprenticeship. But I was very lucky to have certain people as great mentors and great people to uh, model myself after. And Jerry was right there at the top.
0: And at CBS, who was the person that you mentioned earlier would tell stories about Jerry from a decade before?
1: Oh, that was Mort Stevens. Oh, oh, well, actually, several people. Mort Stevens was the head of the, the department. He was the guy who wrote the Hawaii Five O theme.
0: Yeah, and you worked on that show too, I believe.
1: Yeah, I did. I started working on that show. Um, actually, the first show I ever had a credit on was Gunsmoke, but I did my first complete scores on Hawaii 5
0: That's neat. We're exploring Jerry's output on Gunsmoke right now on our chronological journey through his stuff.
1: Okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you a, st- a sad story about that in just a second. Mort and Jerry worked together over at Universal. Mort, Jerry, John Williams, Dave Grusin, Quincy Jones, all those guys used to be on staff at Universal. And that's where Mort and uh, Jerry. So I heard a lot of uh, stories from Mort. The guy who managed the department was a fellow named Victor Kwan. And Victor and the other supervisors would all tell me stories about him. You know, Jerry was so famous and he was so talented. It was easy to tell stories about him. The sad story I want to tell about Jerry's Gunsmoke was one day, and this also tells you how music is treated by all the people that we admire and love. Also, One day I was up at the music library. And I was looking at a at a, a pad of uh, scratch paper, and it was a homemade pad. It was paper that had been cut to be scratch paper, and it was yellow, which meant that it was the back side of score paper. And I could see through the paper that there was writing on the other side. So I flipped over the sheet, and I recognized Jerry's handwriting. So Jerry's old scores had been cut up for scratch paper. Oh no! Which is kind of like cutting up pieces of the Torah or of the Bible or the Koran or something like that for something to uh, wrap your fish in you know that was the dose of reality for me i mean i since then i have tried to find certain scores of mine and realized that the company just threw them away
0: at least the tapes still survive for some of these at least they do for jerry's so there's some hope they might have the original recordings released at least
1: well, cbs was good at, at keep actually a lot of jerry's stuff probably did survive because um, i know they put a lot of it into ucla and other places but but not all of them, you know. Some it was just utilitarian music. It was just music to fill up the show for episode nineteen on season number thirteen or something, you know.
0: Did you hear any of Jerry's Gunsmoke scores before you wrote for that series?
1: No, no. I, I think the first the first scores I heard of Jerry on television were things like uh, Twilight Zone. Oh, I don't know some other shows that I mean they're really old shows. I remember hearing old jazz scores. <clears throat> I remember the first cue that he wrote. That got recorded in the CBS library was something called At the Fountain, which is some little piece of nothing, you know, little piece I of I've never
0: shit. run across that. Was that like a, a kind of a wild library queue or was it for a, an actual program?
1: No, I think it was a library queue. I think it was one of the first library queues he was able to write.
0: Yeah, he did a number of those for CBS.
1: Yeah, well, I you mean, know, in those days, the budgets on these shows were really small. Like on Twilight Zone, uh, one of his really cool scores is Nervous Man and was it, a $4 room or something, which mm-hmm. was written with five players. There were tons of Bernard Herrmann scores written for two players, like Harp and Celeste, which was supposed to be outer space music. A lot of that music was done overseas because it was inexpensive uh, and it was used as library music for years at, uh, at CBS. And that's, I mean, that's where Jerry, along with doing his, telev- his uh, radio shows, he would be tracking some of that stuff. A percussionist told me years ago that he had done a 90-minute, it was Playhouse 90, which is a 90-minute live drama on Mm -hmm. CBS with a live score by Jerry. And he said it was a timpani and a clarinet. That was the score. That was the orchestra. I said, so what was that like? He says, it was incredible. (laughs) (laughs) He had a great skill. The thing I noticed with him, he had a great skill with small groups. I I don't know where where he got that. I, I had the impression it was Sort of just like a knack that he had, but... Um,
0: Probably out of necessity working on radio with non-existent budgets and
1: two instruments. And- well, yeah, but you know, there are knacks and there are knacks. I mean, a lot of people work with small groups and make them sound like crap. <laughs> I mean, he always made small groups sound inventive. Mm-hmm. He, no, he, he was an inventive guy that with, with uh, orchestras and instruments.
0: What other stories can you relay that were told to you by Mort Stevens or other people at CBS?
1: Well, here's a story that's not particularly flattering. In the early days of CBS, they used to call him Genius Baby because when he couldn't get his way, he'd throw a fit, he'd cry. <laughs> <laughs> you know? so that was, he was very emotional, you know. Right now, I can't think of grand stories except that by the time I got there, he had already moved on uh, past Universal, and he was, um, he was doing very well.
0: What was the experience like learning to write for... I guess, TV episodes at the time. What was your learning curve on that?
1: Well, because I was working as a music supervisor, my main job, the reason I got hired, was to be, the title was music supervisor, but what it really was was a cue picker, meaning the job was to track, and this is what Jerry did two years before, to, to track library into shows uh, that didn't have scores, that didn't need scores. And the way that we did it by the time I was there that was that we would have 24 mm-hmm. episodes of a show like Hawaii Five-O. And we would hire a composer for as many shows as we needed to be able to get a library for the season. And then from that music that had been recorded, which might be 10, 12, 13 episodes, we would track the rest of the episodes. When we came up short with a cue that was particularly special or unique and we just didn't have it in the library, then one of the music supervisors would write it and uh, we would attack that score on the end of somebody else's scoring session. So in that way, little by little, I began to learn how to write these things. And because of tracking, uh, I could use music. And, you know, if it didn't work or it wasn't successful, it was really easy to change. So I had a lot of really practice, one-on-one practice. You know, you'd be there working with producers and they'd say, boy, that cue doesn't work. So then you'd go off and you'd find something else. You go, "Okay, thank you. And then you'd figure out how to join these disparate things. It taught me a lot about the, the mechanism of film music. Uh, how it worked, how it was structured, what the purpose of music was, what kind of music that music is. It's a lot different than concert music.
0: So I suppose kind of similarly to Jerry, at a certain point you suggested, oh, hey, I can write something more appropriate for this scene here, or this episode really needs an original score for it. Was that kind of how you took that opportunity?
1: No, that wasn't my job. That was Mort Stevens' job. Because Mort would assign... Assign all that, and if I ever wrote a cue, or the other guys wrote a cue, we did that with the um, with the approval of Mort. He was the creative director in all things. You know, you, you, even now on an old Hawaii Five O, you might see music by Morton Stevens, or you might see music supervision by Morton Stevens. Whenever it says music supervision by, that means it was a track job, and nobody had over fifty percent of the score. If somebody had over fifty percent of the of the music, we would give them the music credit. So it could be that you could see a show. Uh, well, like the first time I got a Gunsmoke credit, I didn't do the entire score. I did what they call a partial score. I had about sixty percent of the music. I had over fifty percent, so I got the credit as composer. But there was about forty percent of the music in the show that I didn't write. Was it tracked and, or some other composer? That's yes, tracked. Oh. Music supervisor for Gunsmoke tracked it, and I. And because it was a, it was rather a large partial score. It was a comedy. Mm-hmm. The only comedy Gunsmoke ever did. I'm even in it. I even playing the piano in it. Oh wow! I had to do it with a small group of about eleven or twelve players. So um, we were really a functioning music department. We had a commitment to the musicians union to record a certain number of hours, and then we anything we used for a given season had to be recorded that year. So we would re-record a lot of music, you know, to be able to use it. It was actually a really great way to grow up because to grow up in the business. Because in those ten years that I was there, uh, I ended up being the manager of the music department, which was Long enough to let me know that I didn't like to do that and I wasn't very good at it. But I did a little bit of everything. I mean, I did some copying, I did library work, I did a lot of music supervision, I was in the booth a lot. Uh, I got to work with a lot of terrific composers like Jerry Fielding. I never worked directly with Jerry Goldsmith, but I got to know him. I got to know his music. And years later, <clears throat> when I actually did get to know him, I had, I had things I could talk about, you know, I had things about to relate to.
0: Was this when you were attending his recording sessions and such? Is it the same period?
1: No, it was after that. When I was attending his recording sessions, I was working at CBS, and I would just walk in, just like anybody, like if Mancini was recording, I'd walk in, picking stuff. I'm sitting there listening, thinking, oh, that's a cool idea. Or, oh, you know. No, it was very exciting. I mean, and also, I have to say, I kind of show my age by saying this, but in those years, the music was good. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting. He did a score, which I think was, um, I think it was the Brotherhood of the Bell. The copyist at that time was um, Jerry Immel. Who went on to write the Dallas theme? Jerry was one of the few copies who broke out of that and became a composer. Jerry had a ton of hits like Knots Landing and all that stuff. But Jerry was, he had gotten these scores from Jerry, and they were scores that Jerry had orchestrated himself. And like I said, it was mostly strings. And what you saw were no notes, no whole notes, no half notes, no sharps, no flats. You just saw lines, geometric lines going across the staves and no instructions. And I said to Jerry, Immel, I said, what is this? He goes, I have no idea. He said, I guess we'll find out when we record it. Well, what it was, was he was trying out, not on all the scores, but on several of the scores, he was trying out these new techniques that he had seen in Penderecki with lines going this way and that way. You know, if the line goes up, you play a figure that goes up and then he would tell you how to play it. He either wanted it pizzicato or he wanted it full of glissandos or he wanted you to play scales or he wanted you to play lines or, you know, whatever it was. He did all this aleatoric kind of stuff, all this sort of like chance music, which I thought was brilliantly brave, Uh, but it was weird as heck to look at on the score and very exciting to hear on on the stand. That was one of the most exciting sessions I ever remember going to.
0: Too many Jerry's writing film music in Hollywood
1: well, to keep them straight. There was Jerry Goldsmith, Jerry Immel, and Jerry Fielding. We worked with all three of them, and there was also didn't uh,
0: Gerald Fried go by Jerry too?
1: Jerry Fried was uh, there, and uh, yeah, a lot of Jerry's. Um, yeah, but this is Jerry Goldsmith was composing, Jerry Immel was copying, and I was looking over Jerry Immel's shoulder. And we were trying to figure it out. I mean, he was doing the same thing I was doing. We were both looking at people's scores and going down and and listening to how they turned out, and you know, we were learning while we were earning really learning on the job
0: another series early in your career that you kind of followed jerry onto um was barnaby jones and of course for that one unlike gunsmoke he composed the pilot episode score and the main theme And you were in a position where you needed to adapt it. What was it like for you to work with and do a development of thematic material written by a different composer in general into your own compositional voice? And kind of what did you learn about Jerry's writing by that process as well?
1: Well, I can't say that I gave it as much thought as your question. To tell you the truth, it had nothing to do with Jerry. I got the job because of uh, the music supervisor, Quinn Martin. And, um, he hired me for two of those, and I think a couple of, I think I did a couple of TV movies and, you know, odds and ends on this thing. But, but what I will say about that, given that it was Jerry's theme, is that Jerry, particularly in his television shows where he had themes like Room 222 and The Waltons and, and uh, this particular theme, Jerry was a really good melodic writer. And people don't think of him as being a big thematic writer. They don't think of him because he doesn't have the big Henry Mancini tunes. But if you listen to his tunes for things like um, Chinatown or even the Star Trek movie or um, Sand Pebbles, things like that, the, the main title to Magic absolutely kills me every time I listen to it. It's like the most beautiful, beautiful tune. A great sense of harmony. He wasn't one of these one, four, or five guys. I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing. Interesting enough, he really moved with the times. I remember asking him uh, about this, and he said, well, he says, you know, it used to be that uh, they liked lots of notes. Now they don't like lots of notes. So you write a lot of whole notes. You write a lot of slow music. So I looked at uh, when I did the um, Disney theme park show Soaring, uh, which was updating... His theme. Yeah, yeah I used his theme. I was able to look at the score. It's a very different way of writing than the old Jerry Goldsmith. This way was all very much the uh, Hollywood way of writing where everything is in root position. There are no, practically no chromatic alterations. There's practically nothing except just very basic chord movements, with one exception. Even that he did for effect. And he knew that he was improperly using the chord, but he knew that it was the style, you know. So this guy had such a huge range. It wasn't just in a matter of the way he used instruments or that he could write like Penderecki or Stravinsky or or whoever. He had a really serious understanding of melody, harmony, counterpoint. This guy, I mean, this guy was like a... He was a composer. He was a real composer. And absolutely worthy of any esteem as far as I'm concerned.
0: So since you brought up Soaring, can you talk a little bit more about working on that? We're jumping ahead in time a lot, but it's the bookend on the other end of uh, Barnaby Jones, where much later in your career, you adapted a Jerry Goldsmith theme.
1: I I don't know what questions you have to ask, but let me just sort of bridge some of that gap. When I worked on Barnaby Jones, I really didn't know Jerry. I mean, I had been on his sessions, and I had seen him, and I I knew who he was, and I read things about him, and I'd heard stories and all that kind of stuff. By the time I worked on Soaring, I knew Jerry, you know, fairly well. We had met several times and we had talked many times. I had followed him on a couple of movies that he couldn't do. He was supposed to do um, Baby's Day Out. He couldn't do that. So I did that. He was supposed to do Tombstone. And I did that, for which I was forever grateful to him. And I used to call him when I was working on Tombstone, (coughs) asking him about people I was working with and doing this and doing that. I mean, he was really, I mean, he was really very helpful. He was really great. I knew he had outright recommended you for
0: Tombstone, but did he do the same for Baby's Day Out as well?
1: You know, I I don't know. He might have because one of the things that I heard about him was that he uh, was—I mean—he was always nice to me to my face, but apparently he was always nice to me behind my back too. (laughs) So I've heard people say to him, "Oh, you know, Jerry said this about you, or Jerry said that about you," which I always appreciated because I knew that he could be pretty acerbic. The one thing that I did get um, that I came in behind Jerry was the actual disney theme park thing i had done one a few years earlier with a different team and then i was asked to do a um, a circle vision thing called um time after time which was going to be installed in france and it was one of those things you know you walk into the room and there are nine screens in a circle so you watch this whole thing and this was something jerry was supposed to do and then he got tied up on something so i got to do it well for me it was great because now i was working with disney And from that, I established a lot of great relationships that led all the way through to um, the latest soaring. So the people I'd worked with. So there's this continuity, which in some ways, I don't want to say I entirely owe it to Jerry, but, you know, Jerry was was in there. By the time I got to soaring, Jerry had already passed away. And I was frankly flattered that uh, I could do this thing as sort of an homage to his earlier show which was a big favorite i've seen so many people who love the original one love the score and love the music that i you know i i thought yeah this is a cool job i mean i always thought that the theme parks were a cool job but this one was such a special show such a great show it's uh, one that people I, I i don't know anybody who's ever seen it who didn't think it was spectacular it's the kind of show that you want to go to disneyland for even if you can't stand disneyland
0: I used to ride that over and over and I was amused to find out when I spoke with Leonard Slatkin, he said the same thing. I went on that ride to hear Jerry's music over and over.
1: Yeah, no, it was a really well-known score. A lot of well-known composers have written for the Disney theme park, but um, I think he got the best shot of anybody.
0: And then after him, you got to follow him on the sequel, essentially.
1: Yeah, I did the sequel. The difference is that The first one he did was flying over California. I'm flying over the entire friggin' world. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of nods to ethnic music, flying over the Great Wall, flying over the Taj Mahal, flying over Africa, whatever.
0: What was your approach to adapting his music into this new or multiple new settings?
1: Well, where I could use his theme, I did. Where I could use his original setting, I did. For instance, at the beginning, when you see the Matterhorn, that's basically what Jerry did. That comes from his earlier score. When you go over the huge um, falls in Brazil, um, I kind of reprise that. The rest of it are really arrangements or music that's based on the mood or whatever, you know. But wherever I could use that theme, I would use it. In fact, I think I used it actually more than he did.
0: <laughs> Were there any other occasions in your career you can think of of you working directly with Jerry's music other than Barnaby Jones and Soren?
1: I don't. Oh, yeah. One time I when I worked at CBS, uh, I got involved in writing music for the um, CBS promotional department. When, one year I did it, the entire campaign uh, nationally. And one of the things they wanted to do was to do a version promoting the Waltons. But they only had a small group, and they wanted to do like a bluegrass version of it. Uh So I hired a fiddle player and a guitarist and a bass player and a a harmonica. I did this really cool version of of the Waltons that really sounded sort of like an Appalachian tune. And they got so excited by it, they wanted to try and use that. They wanted to go to the studio and see if they could use that as the main theme. But I thought, I don't think Jerry would like it. His theme worked just fine the way it was. But that was, I think that was the only other time I ever did anything of his.
0: That's so interesting. Did you write any actual scores for the Waltons TV series?
1: Oh, no. That was, um, I think Jerry did, uh, it was kind of a slow time in movies for him. So he did the Waltons. And then when he started getting back in the movies, I think that the scores went to the guys who had been orchestrating with him Arthur Morton and uh, Sandy Courage.
0: Can you give any extra insight about the inside story of Jerry recommending you for Tombstone when, you know, a scheduling conflict caused him to have to bow out of that assignment?
1: Um, No, I can't. I can only tell you that the people that he worked with on Tombstone were people, it was was Andy Vanya was the executive producer. He had worked with Andy a lot. He and Andy were close personal friends. I was in London one time scoring a movie and staying at the hotel, same hotel as as, uh, Jerry was and um jerry walked in i think i was sitting at the bar and, and jerry walked in with his entourage it was carol and kenny hall and he said oh hey come on he says we're we're meeting in this other room come on over we're waiting for andy we so come in with us so i sat there and then andy came in they were on the way to go to hungary i think to to um record solomon's minds mm-hmm. so i know they had a very strong friendship and a strong working relation relationship and i think that um if Jerry did, in fact, recommend me, which he very well may have, I know that he really liked the score to young Sherlock Holmes.
0: What did he say to you about that?
1: He just said he thought it was really good writing. <laughs> oh, nice. It was fine, you know. I mean, that's, it's good to hear that from the guy you respect the most. I knew that I was working with Jerry's people, and I wasn't trying to take over anything. Uh, I was really happy to have the job. He had worked with the director, George Kosmodis, many times. And um, George could be a little, you know, a little hard to work with. Jerry knew how to get around and work with these people, and he sometimes would give me advice, but um, I didn't ask him how to do this or how to do that. I mean, how should I play this or how should I play that? You know he would check in every once in a while see how it was going. That was basically it. you know. I never got tutored by him, and I never asked him how to how to solve any sort of a problem uh, this way either a personal problem or a creative problem. But I was always happy to hear his experience or and sometimes he would say things that you know like if you're listening to another composer. Sometimes they tell you stuff that they've solved problems that you haven't figured out how to solve one way or the other. Sometimes you're just musical problems. And it was interesting to t- get his take on um, films and directors and, and, you know, how the music works in general. But we never, I can't say that we knew each other so well that we would sit down and talk for hours about it.
0: On Tombstone, there have been reports after the fact that Kurt Russell himself contributed greatly to the creative side of things on the film and even rumors that he directed parts of it. Can you comment on that at all and whether you interacted with him?
1: I, I didn't interact with him at
0: all. Was it primarily with the director George P. Cosmatos?
1: Well, actually on that movie it was primarily with Andy.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. So you, you did you spot the film with Andy Vanya?
1: Yeah, I don't remember. I may I probably did it with George. I, I saw the Kurt Russell thing. Uh, on the internet. I saw him do a question and answer thing that he he took credit for a lot of the directing. He and um, some of, one of the other cast members, I can't remember exactly who it was. Val Kilmer? It, it may have been Val Kilmer, yeah. That may be true. I don't know. I don't know whether it was or not. But George's fingerprints are all over the film, I can tell you that. All the close-ups at the OK Corral, I mean, that's all George. And uh, the, I think the big emotional expression, the big over-the-top sense that you get in Tombstone, um, I think that's George.
0: So what was it like working with him?
1: He could be a very sweet guy, or he could be he could be really difficult. I mean, he could hold, really hold your feet to the fire. And if there wasn't a fire, he could light one for you. <laughs> he could be very cutting on his opinion. I think he did that to get the best work out of you. And I'm not sure that he always got the best work that way. I, I saw other people react to him, but he could also be very appreciative. He really liked the score of the Tombstone, and um, he let me know. He was okay to work with, but he, he could be you know, he could be difficult. He was very emotional, but he loved what he did. And he worked with Andy Vanya many times. You know, he did Rambo 2" and he did a couple of other things that Andy did. I thought George was a very competent guy, but I know he was a very bright guy. And um, he spoke a couple of languages and was well-read. He could speak about any number of things, knew lots of people. So it was an experience.
0: One thing I've always found interesting, and it must just be total coincidence, but Jerry composed for the same basic story decades before with the film Hour of the Gun, and I always kind of thought your score and his were, I mean, they sound very different and sound like they're written by different composers, but they're somewhat simpatico in kind of their dark approach to the material, you know, low brass writing and understated sections and that sort of thing. It's interesting with a similar story to hear a similar approach from the both of you.
1: Yeah, there's probably a good reason for that. When I first saw Tombstone, I had already done Silverado. And they only had, because they were really working against the gun, they only had half the, the movie to show me. So I saw like the first five, six reels. And they had tempted it with Silverado. It was horrible, it was just horrible. And it made the movie look stupid.
0: I'm gonna do the opposite of that, you said to yourself.
1: Well, I mean, I thought that this is a horrible movie. I you know, I don't wanna do this. Uh, and George came out after the screening, and he was, he was all aglow and said, so What do you think about my music? I said, I love your music, George, but I hate it in this movie, you know? So I, when I first started working on Tombstone, I wasn't that keen on it, but I was working on tracks that didn't have the uh, temp score in it. And once I got away from the temp score and I just looked at the movie by itself, I thought, oh, actually, this has got some stuff in it. And it turned out that the movie was so different if you play the Silverado score, which a lot of people like, it's very big, it's very positive, it's very white hat, black hat, it's very good guy, bad guy, friendship, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's very clear what it's about. Tombstone, they I tell people they have no good guys in Tombstone, everybody's a bad guy in Tombstone, even even Wyatt Earp. I mean, he's cheating on his wife, his wife is a drug addict, you know. He's in there to make money, he's he just come to town to, to work in the bars and make a bunch of loot and leave the uh, law business, you know, somebody else. He sort of gets dragged into it against his will. He's a really tough, almost unlikely guy to be a hero, you know. And music is like that. The music's way over the top. It's very melodramatic and and very dark and, and very powerful and screaming at you, you know, in the rain and all that kind of stuff. As he's screaming back at the Bad guys, you know, none of that is in Silverado. Silverado's a light movie, like, oh, you're the bad guy, and so we're gonna have a face off, and I'm the good guy, and blah, blah. Silverado was very well worked out. The script was very well worked out. The whole story was very well, and it's a complex story. Like, if if you're watching Silverado, and you've gotta have a bathroom break, and you've never seen the movie before, you may miss something in the story. But if you miss Tombstone for five minutes, you're not gonna miss anything. You're still gonna get a big whopping performance and a wild ride. They're just very, very, very different movies. So if Jerry had a movie that was similar in tone to Tombstone, I can see that we both would do a similar approach, take it very dark. You know, I mean, why not? This is one of the things that Jerry picked up from Bernard Herrmann, because he used to listen to a lot of Bernard Herrmann scores, too. And Bernard Herrmann even sued him, saying the little creeps stealing all my ideas. What? Um, I never heard that. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jerry was young and he was going to be very successful. He was really good. But he, he did listen to, to Herman, and the one thing I think that he got from Herman, which I think is the most interesting thing about Herman, is that Herman figured out that the one thing that people are moved by in music with film is not the melodies, not the themes, not the chords, not the harmonies, it's the color of the orchestration. So he would, but you can see this in his um, Twilight Zones, which usually were small budget things, he would do these special combinations of in- instruments that he thought would tell the story in an emotional way. He would do repetition. Like it drives me up over the wall. I mean, when I hear the Bernard Herman things with bump, it, um, bump, it, um, bump, it, um, bump, it, um, bump, you know, ad nauseum. But it has a, a pulse and it has an orchestral sound and feel that works great with the movie. And I think Jerry picked that up. But Jerry just wrote better music. I mentioned Chinatown earlier. Chinatown is one of my favorite scores. But Chinatown basically owes a lot to Bernard Herman in terms of the the color of it. Now the way that Jerry chose to use the instruments is truly Jerry. I mean, that's a guy who studied well and who could pick up ideas well and understood what he was reading. But the whole idea of using that color, that very specific color, is something I think that goes to Herman. I think that his style and the way that he dealt with cues and scores and background music owes an awful lot to Alex North, because Alex, uh, Alex was a planner. Alex would have three-by-five cars all over, his, all over the room where he was working to kind of show him where he was in the story, and he would make an analysis of the story so he knew where it was flowing and where the themes went and all this, that kind of stuff. Uh, Alex had a much more... Um, if you took Herman's point of view as being a very emotional point of view, uh, although he obviously thought about what he did. I think you could take Alex and say he had more of a cerebral point of view, although he had music that was heavily emotional and, and you know, started the least really strong. And I think Jerry picked up the best from both of them and ran with it, you know, where, where Jerry used to get me was uh, I would go in and I would see one of his movies and get very excited. I mean, he used to write really great music to really awful movies. And I remember seeing some sci-fi thing and taken out by the music, which was, basically in the style of Skriabin. but it was consistent. And the orchestration and the harmonies and the harmonizations, all I'd listened to it and I thought, wow, I don't know Skriabin well enough to be able to do it like this. Or I don't know Stravinsky well enough or Bartok. Well, I mean, whoever he was, whoever he was channeling, he would do it in such an authentic way that you realize, I mean, he, he could not only use the style and write consistently in the style, He could use it in a way that would be sensitive to the story. It was like, not only am I choosing three trumpets or six trumpets for this, I'm also going to choose the style that I'm going to be consistent. And where where he came from these things, somebody told me once, one of the people who worked at the uh, MGM Music Library said that Jerry's biggest regret, stylistically, is that he never really came up with a great original way of dealing with Westerns. That he still um, needed the Americana Copeland way of dealing with it, you know? Because you, you knew that he struggled with ways of being able to tell the story in an inventive way. The other thing I found out, the other thing I, I found personally about Jerry's music, his scores, and this is, again, not in any way to discredit anything that he did, I found that they were always more interesting in the movies. Uh, when I heard them by themselves, I never got quite as excited, with some exceptions. I never got quite as excited as I did when I saw them in the movie. And what that means to me is that he would approach, I, I never saw a movie that I thought he did a bad job in. I never, I never saw a movie where I thought that he was doing less than 100% for the film. But I think that what he did, he could look at a scene and say, okay, this is a scene that needs music, but it only needs so much music. It only needs, like Earl Hagen used to say, it only needs 40% of music, or it only needs 20%, or maybe it needs 90%. He knew how to gauge this, but he knew how to let the movie work on its own when it had something to say and do. I can't say that most composers are able to do that. Most composers put their score in and get incredibly narcissistic about what they've done and forget that there's a movie playing. I mean, they're basically just accompanying a movie, you know. But when Jerry accompanied a movie, he always left space for the solo voice, which is the movie. So that I think when you saw these movies, at least when I saw the movies, and I would get very excited, like Capricorn 1 was one. I got so excited by that music. Looking at the film, he just, I mean, he just filled in all this. He just knew what he, or what when I went to see um, Patton. I couldn't believe what I was listening to. Well, when you listen to it by itself, it's really interesting, but when you see with that score, given what that repeater on the trumpet is is actually referring to, it's a very powerful element and very clever and, and very ingenious and something that the movie doesn't bring on its own. It implies it, it talks about it, but it doesn't do it. With Jerry's music, you feel the whole thing, you know? Just feel like when Patton stands there and talks about, I've been on these fields before and I've lived these wars before, like, you know, I believe in this reincarnation. And then he has that trumpet call and it goes out through history over the years and years and years and years. That's pretty friggin' clever, you know?
0: favorite elements of your score to Tombstone is your use of some more exotic flavors in terms of the instrumentation, like in particular, the cymbalum, which is one of my favorite, more exotic instruments. And uh, Jerry had some history. With that instrument himself, uh, maybe my favorite usage of it being in a score to high velocity. And, you know, in general, he would make a point of using distinct or exotic sounds, you know, both unusual instrumental combinations, which you mentioned, but also some unusual instruments and synth usage being included in that. So I wanted to know what your feelings were about incorporating unusual instruments with the traditional symphony orchestra, either on this particular score or in general.
1: Well, I, I, I can tell you about that one, but this reminds me, I was on one of his sessions. I mean, just stand there. Listening, and he was yelling, to the, um, yelling back to the percussion section about the uh, Jews' harp. And the, the player said, well, you know, you got, and I can't remember the number of notes because I don't know the instrument that way. He, he says, well, you know, you got three pitches. You can play blah, 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 blah. And Jerry said, well, I didn't know. I thought you could only get two. So so right there, he's learning about the instrument. You know, he's trying to figure out more about it. My interest, I I think Jerry was always interested in an exotic instrument if he could use it in a way that was convincing. And of course, as I said a while ago, he happened to have a real knack at doing that. The reason I like the symbolum was because uh, when I worked at CBS, we had two grand pianos on the scoring stage. One was a, they were both Steinways. One was a playing grand, a concert grand that played all the piano solos. And the other one was another concert grand that was a tack piano because we were doing Westerns. We were doing Wild, Wild West. We were doing Gunsmoke. You know, we had all that kind of stuff. So you had this big, beautiful piano that had been more or less destroyed by putting tacks in the felt, you know. But it was such a beautiful piano, it gave such a great sound. One time, Larry, Rosenman, uh, Larry Rosenthal rather, came in to do a um, demo. Larry's a really good composer, and he's a really good pianist. And he did a demo with the tack piano and a 12-string guitar. It was beautiful. I mean, it was just beautiful. And I never forgot that sound. So in subsequent scores, I would try to get a tack piano, which was really hard, because you had to get an old beat-up piano that somebody could put tacks in the felt, which nobody liked to do. And finally, because I associated it with the western. I started using cymbalums. They were easier to use and easier to find. And we did Tombstone in England. There was a guy there who was a really fine, he was a percussionist, he was a really fine cymbal player, um, cymbal player, whatever. So it just, you know, it really worked well. The instrument that I did use, it had no Western connotation, but had this kind of big low end, was a contrabass cerusophone, which sounds sort of like a cow in heat. I play that really low. This is an instrument that used to be uh, the instrument that the French used instead of a contrabassoon. So I sort of brought it out of hiding. We looked all over England. I think there were three of them, and we borrowed one of them, and and one of the bassoon players learned to play it well enough to get on the score. So we used that. I used, remember, a contrabass trombone just to get anything low, you know, low with different distinctive sounds. And if you listen to the score, you can hear this thing sort of farting its way through the bottom part of some of the scores, you know. Thank you.
0: Recording of the new Synergy logo fanfare that Jerry composed to premiere with Tombstone before he departed the project.
1: I conducted it. We did it at the beginning of the uh, Tombstone date.
0: Oh, neat! I thought some other conductor did Tombstone.
1: I didn't realize. Oh no, no, that's no, that's true. I didn't conduct. That's I forgot that I didn't conduct Tombstone, but we did the Synergy logo at the beginning of that session.
0: You did conduct that one.
1: Uh, the other guy, I, you know, I don't really remember. The other guy may have done it, or I may have done it. Uh, this time I decided to be in the booth. It's the only time I didn't conduct one of my own pieces. I wanted to be in the booth because Andy was there, and I wanted to be sure that I was doing okay. But I remember we, we recorded the logo on that date, you know.
0: Throughout the 90s, Jerry scored a number of similar films in the political action thriller genre. And I was wondering if George Picosmato's Matos considered collaborating with him again on Shadow Conspiracy. Or was he just so over the moon about your tombstone collaboration that you essentially became his new regular collaborator?
1: Well, there wasn't much regular about it. I think uh, Shadow Conspiracy was the last movie George did, but well, you didn't know that at the time. No, George uh, George wanted me to do Shadow Conspiracy, and um, called me about it. And then he says, "Well, okay, great." He says, "Now I got to tell Jerry." Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I don't think that that was one of the best, easiest phone calls to make because uh, Jerry could be a pretty strong personality, you know. Tombstone for the company, and in general, I mean, Tombstone is one of the scores I hear about a lot. In fact, two or three times I've received a commission to do a concert work, which is fine. Then there were always good commissions. And then they would say before we finished our luncheon or whatever, you know, we also really like the music to Tombstone. And I'd say, oh, you like the expressiveness, the melodrama, the over the top emotional feeling. They go, yeah. So that's crept into a, a lot of music, you know or it crept into a lot of conversations. I think on the heels of that, George thought that maybe lightning would hit twice. George was having um, a difficult time when he was doing Shadow Conspiracy. His wife was very sick. I think he was under a lot of pressure. It was a difficult film to do. um, And it wasn't, I don't think it was going really well with the studio at the time. So they were all hoping that somebody could pull out the, the rabbit out of the hat on that one. So I, that may be what the thing was. I don't know. I mean, I, if George had lived long enough to do two or three other movies, I would be really surprised if he hadn't worked with Jerry again. I've, I've had cases where I couldn't do things and somebody else worked on it. I mean, I was supposed to do Home Alone and John Williams ended up doing it because I couldn't do it. So that just happens, you know. But I ended up working with um, with the producer who was John um, John Hughes, who uh, was great. You know, I ended up working with John a couple of times a few years after that. So. People work with each other, you know, it's like Peter Himes worked with Jerry, and then he worked with me, then he worked with John Debney, and then he worked with Mark Isham, and he worked with a whole bunch of people, you know, some composers work with a lot of other guys, some directors work a lot with other people, so I don't know, but I did, he did ask me to do Shadow Conspiracy, yeah.
0: Peter Himes seems to have pretty good taste in composers, even though he didn't have consistent collaborators, kind of like Otto Preminger, he had good taste in picking talented composers for his projects.
1: Well, I like to think that.
0: About Shadow Conspiracy, I have to ask you, because it's one of my uh, co-host's favorite scores of yours, and it features some of your most relentless action music, which is kind of a genre that Jerry was renowned for, especially in the 90s. How did you approach it, and was it a challenge to write like that? You know,
1: such busy and active music. Oh, busy and active music's not that hard for me to write. <laughs> I write lots of those. Whole notes are hard for me to write. You know, when there's nothing going on in the background, that's really hard for me to write, uh, to keep that stuff alive. Look, I mean, you know, I figure your job as a composer is to do your best for the film. And if the film, just like I was saying, I always thought that Jerry did a great job with the films because he, he knew how much to give it. He knew when to give it a lot. He knew when to not give it very much at all. But he never gave 100% of what was going on on the screen because he was aware that the, whatever was going on in the screen was contributing an awful lot of stuff, too. And doing movies and doing television jobs, I figured if if you've got to give a lot of energy, and if if you can help the picture by doing it, then you just do it. You know, you just do it. It may be hard, because you're, you're writing a lot of notes. You're not going to get as much music written on those days as you will in a love scene, but you give it whatever it needs. And and the way I grew up at CBS with Mort Stevens, and then looking at Jerry, I mean, those two guys, they were great models because. They were really good with film. I mean, they, were just, they weren't these lugubrious kind of composers that just sort of meander in the background, you know? Like, even now on contemporary films, I'm appalled to see how sometimes chases are done. You know, you, they just use it to a drum set and a guitar track or you know, strings playing the same doody, doo doody, doo doody, doo you know, all over and over again. I mean, these things we would write out. And I don't know, it was, to me, it was just part of the job. It, I mean, if, if your friend, your partner thinks I did a good job on that, that's great. I'm happy to hear that. But for me, it was just what the job was at the time. And you hope people like it, that you hope that it's successful.
0: It's one of my favorite themes that you've written, and it's kind of a close cousin of the Tombstone theme. But as much as I love Tombstone, I think I might like your Shadow Conspiracy theme even better. I love that low brass writing.
1: Well, that's good. I I, I like some of the the cues that I can remember. I I like the tune. Um, So thank you.
0: Speaking of brass, I want to transition a bit to writing music for the concert hall. During the late 60s and early 70s, Jerry experimented for a few years with writing large-scale works for the concert hall, including Christos Apollo and music for orchestra. There were even news reports that he was working on a concerto for cello and orchestra in the 70s called Quadrants, which he sadly apparently never completed. As you've also written memorably for both film and the concert hall, from your perspective, what are the challenges for a, a composer primarily known for their film work to kind of be accepted and break into the concert hall world?
1: Well, it's a, it can be rough. I mean, Jerry's a lot better known than I, than I ever was in terms of the film music. I mean, John's sort of like the John Williams is sort of like this, too. When they get concert music played, uh, there's a lot of respect that comes with the um, criticism of it. You know, With mine... Uh, I would like everybody to take the music on its own merits and and not to reference my movie background. I mean, if the piece sucks, then it should be talked about if If the piece is really good, i don't want to have to have it compared to silverado you know I just it's stupid. One guy went out of his way. I had done something a couple of years ago with Chicago Symphony, and Chicago it actually was the brass of the chicago symphony and um, it was a big concert, so it got reviewed, and the guy went out of his way to find one of my most Insignificant credits of all the stuff that I'd ever done. I think I did one episode, maybe two, of Heart to Heart. I mean, that was a show that Mark Snow did. I wasn't the composer on it. And how he found it, I don't know. But it was like he he went through to find the stuff that would make me look as dumb as anybody, you know, as as I possibly could. Now I really don't care. Now I'm writing what I want to write. People have always asked me to write pieces for them. I've never had a problem getting a commission or or uh, someone interested in getting a new piece. And I figure that they asked me to write it because they like my music or because they like to play it or because audiences like to hear it. Um, I try not to pander, but I try not to disenfranchise at the same time. So working in movies and particularly in television, you garner a huge technique because you're writing all the time. I mean, Jerry got a huge technique. John Williams has a huge technique. They're, you know, they're both talented guys, but amplified by this ability to write and write and write and write in different styles. And... and you know, write for years and years and years and years. Well, I had the same thing. And several of us have got the same thing. So it's great to be able to put it to good use. The biggest difference, I think, is that in film music, and this is just stating facts, this isn't a bias, in film music, whether it's for video games or television or films or whatever, even theme parks, it's an accompaniment. It's always an accompaniment. The film is the main voice. And Every note of Silverado, every note of Tombstone, every note of Chinatown, of Star Wars, of anything, was there because the timing was there to fill up time in in the the movie that they were writing to. All the decisions are made based on the film. In a concert piece, you don't have that luxury. You don't have somebody letting you know what the music's going to be about. You don't have another bit of media telling you how long the phrase is going to go, or when you have to transition, or when you're going to do blah, blah, blah. One of the things that you don't have in film is any consideration of form, of how long the piece is going to, to last or how long it's going to work or when themes come by or not. So concert music is its own animal, but you get the advantage of having this large uh, technique to work from. I find myself rewriting a lot more on concert music because now I'm the director. I get a chance to look at it like I was working on. The latest piece I'm working on is a concerto for harp and, and flute. I'm now into the orchestration bit, which I really enjoy, but I was working on a thing last night, and I looked at it and I thought, about eight bars here really stinks. (laughs) I mean, it just stinks. So I'm going to have to rewrite it. I mean, at three o'clock in the morning, I was lying awake thinking, I've got to fix that. You know, I can fix that. So I've got to figure out what the problem is and then fix it, which I will. I owe that to my movie and TV music. But doing the concert music is great because, for one thing, people stand up and applaud. In movies. Nobody stands up and applauds in movies. What you're looking for is the director to say, "Yeah, that works. Let's move on." <laughs>
2: you know,
1: very, 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 very different. It's exciting to be in a movie, to hear your score with an audience, to know that you're because you can feel the audience being moved one way or the other with your music. You can feel that, but you know, it's no more exciting than being in a concert hall, hearing or feeling the the a concert hall of two hundred or, or five hundred or five thousand or three thousand, whatever people. Um, I was doing a concert a couple of years ago in. Um, Topeka, of all places. We were doing a summer music festival, and I was doing a new piece there. Brand new piece. It was a premiere of a new piece. When it was over, I turned around. The, the people started to applaud. I turned around to accept the applause and saw a wave of people standing up. The wave was starting, but it didn't start up from the front so that all the people behind it would get embarrassed and have to stand up and join the wave. It started from the back, and it was the weirdest thing. Like People started standing up from the back row, and then the row right in front of it, and then the row in front of that. It was. It was really weird, and I thought, "Wow, that's really cool applause. you know you'd never get that in a movie, but to, even to get it in a concert was you know it's very exciting, so I've come to see myself, and I think Jerry saw himself this way. I think John sees himself this way to some some degree. you know, we're composers, and sometimes we work on movies and sometimes we do concert things, sometimes we conduct other people's music, sometimes we perform other people's music. We're musicians and I like working in the movies. I like working in television. I love doing animation. I love doing theme parks, but I really, 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 really like doing my own music. It's funny, the, the cello piece that you were talking about of Jerry's, I just finished a trombone concerto called Quaternity. So we had four, four things on, on the mind, too.
0: Oh, wow. Any uh, plans to record that trombone concerto or the, uh, or the flute and harp?
1: the trombone piece is recorded Uh, it'll come out probably in January
0: oh that's really exciting trombone
1: and band yeah it's a good piece I love your
0: trombone writing
1: well well, my brother was a trombone player so I used to spend hours Ah. and years accompanying him this was written for Joe Alessi who's the principal trombone in the the New York Philharmonic Joe just plays the bejeepers out of it and the piece went over really well I'm I'm very happy with the piece the flute and harp piece I haven't given the parts to the players yet so we hope that they'll be as thrilled as I am with it (laughs)
0: Do you have a favorite concert work of yours that you've done?
1: Well, I like the trombone piece a lot. Um...
0: I think the first thing I heard of yours was back when I was managing a classical music shop in Houston. I was really tickled to find your name on a Harmonia Mundi album, which had a brass piece of yours that was uh, Fanfares, Marches, Hymns and Finale. Oh, yeah. And that's right. such a thrilling piece and also so well recorded that it, it's just it really grabs you when you hear that album.
1: It's a San Francisco group, uh, the Bay Brass. Uh, we recorded it up in San Francisco at um, George Lucas' studio. Uh, what do you call it? Skywalker. Um, I think Sean, Mur- yeah, Sean Murphy recorded it. Sean does John Williams recordings. Actually, we recorded it twice. The first time we recorded it, uh, soon after somebody in the studio erased the tapes accidentally, so we had to go back and re-record it. But we a better oh, job, so it was great. Fortuitous. Yeah, fortuitous. That piece has been played. Uh, the Chicago group plays a lot. That piece has been played, yeah, that piece gets played in Australia, England, Japan, all over the place. So it's, it's done pretty well. piece uh, i don't know there are a lot of pieces i like there's some t- other pieces i don't know i tend to not like the piece i'm working on until i realize it's probably better than i think it is until after it's done which is also true of movie scores when i'm writing a movie score i really think it's awful until about six months later i look, listen to it and i go oh actually that works pretty well <laughs> you know you get too close to it
2: mm-hmm
0: I was also a little bit curious to ask you about your experience on Alone Yet Not Alone. You got a an Oscar nomination with that that weirdly went away. I was wondering if you felt open to speaking about that experience at all and, and how that project happened. Um, if you don't want to, that's fine. We can move no, on. No,
1: no, dude, let me just let try and form it this way. I find, a, I find it hard to talk about the piece in a way That makes sense to other people who don't know what the situation is. I'm still pissed off about it. I think that there, I think it was essentially a political move, and I could name names who you would know that I think were responsible partially for it. I, there are a lot of things I can say about it, but uh, the main thing I will say is that there were no rules broken. I mean, I wasn't stupid. I knew what the rules were. And though there had been some other rules broken that same year in the music uh, branch, Um, nobody ever addressed those i didn't do anything wrong but um i think that it just stunned people that this movie came from nowhere even though years before in the music branch we had tried to take care of movies like that we were concerned about movies that were big movies that had a lot of marketing a lot of promotion anything that warner brothers puts out or or um 20th century fox or sony or paramount i mean they have millions of dollars of marketing If you have some little, some little low-budget movie, in this particular case, a little religious movie that was really low-budget, it has no marketing. You know, it just it has nothing. And I had to really convince them to be able to even get the movie in a theater for a week to qualify for Academy consideration. But we tried to in the in the Academy and the music branch, we tried to make it possible for films like that to be heard, because you know, you never know. There might be a great song in it. Like a guy told me years before when I was still working at C B S he said, Look, he said, A couple of years ago there was this really B movie in Germany that was not a good movie at all, but it had a tune in it that became Strangers in the Night. So you never know. And I never forgot that. I mean I, I still think of that. And I thought so when I was, you know, talking when we were talking together in the music branch, we decided to watch all the submitted films, all the ones that were qualified, and just listen to the music. Good or bad. I mean, good film, bad film, big productions or nothing and we did it for years so this year alone yet not alone was one of those films that was a basically like an orphan film as far as marketing and it came out of nowhere was a big surprise and i think people got ticked off you know because it was just so unexpected it was unexpected but it was also it was a weak competitor in a very strong market where i mean you're out there swimming with sharks you know i mean a nomination is worth a lot of money to the production company. And there were some big films that were there. I, I can proudly say that there were some polls that were being taken while well, the film before the song had been denominated. Uh, there were polls that showed when the question was, "Who do you think should win the uh, best song?" Uh, our song came up in like 86 percent, when the other songs, I mean, all the other songs were down like 14, 13, 14. So we were polling very well. I mean, people liked it. We had a we had a really good. Um, video on it. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I didn't get it. They took it away. And here we are. So yeah, I'm still ticked off about it. And, and um, that's the way it goes as show business.
0: But uh, I don't believe you did the score for that film,
1: right? No, I was asked, I was supposed to do the score. I was asked to do the score. And then I had a falling out with the producer. And um, so they asked Bill Ross, who's, you know, Bill's a really competent guy. And Bill did the arrangement of the song, as it turned out. And Bill's a great arranger.
0: So it's because the song was written in pre-production.
1: The song was like, if it had won, or if it had stayed nominated to to at least go through the competition, it would have served to be a perfect model for what the songs are supposed to be. It was written during production, actually it was written before production for the movie. It was used in the film, sung by the characters, used as a thematic element throughout the film. So by the time the song comes at the end, it's part of the story.
0: It's integral.
1: Yeah, it's, it's completely integral. And the director was uh, part of it. The producer was part of it. Everybody signed off on the song. You know, my lyricist did a great job. Dennis did a great job on it. So there you go. But it didn't, didn't get that far, which is really a shame. But that's as much as I care to say about it. Oh, that's <laughs> fine.
0: No, I, I just thought it was interesting that, you, I mean, you don't have a large songwriting career that I know of. So I thought it was fascinating that you were attached to the song for this film, but not the score.
1: Well, you know, every once in a while in a film, I had a chance, I'll, t- I'll tell you where I wrote a lot of songs, for Tiny Tunes. Because I used to do a series, I was the supervising composer on that. So whenever they had a little tune, I was the guy who wrote them. Unfortunately, my job, or fortunately, my job was to um, find the composers who could write. We had 100 episodes and I couldn't do them all. Um, so if somebody else got an episode that had one of my songs in it, they ended up doing the arrangement. So I wasn't always too keen on the arrangements I was hearing, but I wrote most of those songs. So that's, you know, I, every once in a movie, I got a song. What was that movie called? There was one movie I did that main title was a song that I got in it. Anyway, so yeah, I I wish I'd had more opportunities to write songs. But, you know, I'm pretty happy with what I've done already.
0: Just since you brought up Tiny Toons, if you don't mind me asking, another one of my composing heroes is Shirley Walker. Did you have much interaction with her that you can talk about?
1: Yeah, um, I didn't have any um, professional. uh, That is, we never worked together on the same projects, but I knew Shirley pretty well. For about four or five years, I was the president of the Society of Composers and Lyricists. This um, musical group here in Hollywood, it's not a union. It was the after effects of the union that we had. And Shirley, for a while, was my vice president. She was a really, well, she was really talented, but she was a really smart, articulate woman. And she was very devoted to composers. She had had a real struggle being a woman getting herself uh, known. For a long time, she sat in the back, you know, doing orchestrations or doing additional music for this person and that thing. But she kept going, and she eventually started to do very well. I mean, she I think she's the first really well-acknowledged woman composer in Hollywood. And she mentored a ton of people, men and women, but uh, a lot of women. She took under her wings and, and got them started. Like Lolita Ritmanis, here in, in California, there's a, another lady in uh, Australia, to Tyson-Chu. I mean, several women uh, worked with Shirley, and, and Shirley got him going. I mean, Shirley was a spectacular lady. I mean, I, I couldn't say enough great things about Shirley.
0: Yeah, I'd say what she was doing with her team on Batman, the animated series, and some of those other shows in the 90s were... And also, I would include Tiny Tunes in that sort of renaissance of original television music, you know, it was kind of this return to the golden age of this kind of work that people were doing back in the 60s, like Jerry and Bernard Herrmann on Twilight Zone and that sort of thing. It it was this really creative era. And it was so, so nice to hear that quality TV music become so dominant, you know, in terms of orchestral writing in the 90s.
1: Yeah, it was, um, actually, it was the beginning of the Renaissance Tiny Tunes was because it came up because of Steven Spielberg, and Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers had that huge history of Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd and all that stuff. Tiny Toons was like a junior version of that, and they wanted the music to be as much as possible in the style of Carl Stalling, which is a hard act to follow, you know. So my gig as supervising composer was to write as many as I could and then find composers who could work in that style. That was difficult because now I'm saying yes and I'm saying no to composers. I was getting a lot of tapes. I was getting submissions from agents. I learned a lot about agents doing that. I had, um, I think I may have lost a couple of friendships over it, but I listened to all the, all the submissions I got, and I found there were a lot of good composers who I just didn't have the feeling could write in that style. Like, I don't think, frankly, that I would have had he been available, had he been interested, and I know he was not, because uh, he turned up as he kind of sneered when I told him what I was doing. I don't think Jerry would have done it. I don't think Jerry was very good at it. That's
0: so ironic because his final film score was for Looney Tunes back in action. He did do that Carl Stalling thing pretty well, I thought.
1: I I haven't seen the score. I'd be curious to see it cause I, I never thought that he did comedy very well. I didn't think that was a strong suit, but I did call um, Larry Rosenthal, <laughs> and he did one. And he did it great, but he took time doing it. I mean, he couldn't get done on time because was just he's so careful and so particular. Fred Steiner, who did the Perry Mason theme, did several. Fred was great. Mort Stevens, who did the Five Oats theme, did, he didn't do them like Carl Stalling, but he did, he did a great job at them. I and he was inventive as heck. But no, so we got some. Bill Ross did a couple. Joel McNeely. I mean, we had a, we had several good writers who, uh, they did a great job on it, really a great job. And it. it was a lot of fun just to watch the guy's scores.
0: That must have been a fun environment. Yeah, it was great.
1: Almost. It was great.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the most recent film project you did was the pilot for The Orville?
1: Yeah, that's probably true.
0: How did that come about? And what was it like working with Seth MacFarlane on this? Yeah, I mean, kind of Jerry Goldsmith related because it's a Star Trek homage.
1: Um... First of all, Seth is great, and I'm, I'm saying that not because he's still alive and he might listen to this. He's great to work with. He's a very bright guy. He is music forward, and he's sort of a film music geek. I mean, he knows the scores. He can pull them up, as he did many times. He would, he would be referencing, let's say, a Star Trek score or a Deep Space Nine or something like that, and he's standing with his iPhone, flipping through the phone. Pretty soon, he's playing the cue. He says, like this one, you know, I hear this. The way I met him, he called me out of the blue one Sunday afternoon and asked me if I would do an arrangement for him. He was working the next summer with John Williams and the L.A. Phil at the Hollywood Bowl, and he wanted to sing uh, dee da 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 da, uh, luck, luck Be a Lady Tonight. And I had never done anything like that before. I'd never done any big arrangements. I mean, I did one or two, but nothing like that. So he sought you out for that arrangement? He sought me out for that because he liked my music. He liked my film music. And I found afterwards that was really true. I mean, I've been at his house where he's been trying to bang out my tunes on the piano, you know. He's a very, pretty decent pianist. So my first thought was, uh, this I mean, I have nothing to do with this, and I thought, yeah, sure, of course, I should try everything once. So I did it, and it turned out fine. He was happy, John was happy, nobody complained, and then he called me back about a year or so later, and he said, I'm doing some albums, uh, I've got three albums I want to do, would you like to do one of them with me? I said, yeah, sure. So again, I had never done arranging like that, I'd never done any big band arranging in my life. So uh, we did that. We're still in the process of mixing it. I think it's supposed to come out next year. I, just, I hope so.
0: Oh, that's an exciting scoop. I didn't know about this collaboration at all. I thought Joel McNeely was his guy.
1: Well, Joel, I think Joel is his primary guy. But one of the guys, we did these three albums. Joel did one. I did one. And then the third one was done by a fellow named Andrew Cotti, who is one of the writers on The Orbital Andrew is a really talented guy, an English guy, very good orchestrator, good writer. So he didn't arrange it. The three albums are different. Joel's, I think, is a swing album. Andrew's, I think, is ballads. And the one I did uh, are comprised of either show tunes or tunes that came from the movies, some of which you would know and some of them which you wouldn't. So then after that, he called and he said, would you be interested in doing a TV show? And I said, well, like what? And he said, well, I've got this show that I'm thinking of doing called The Orville. And he explained what it was. He said, it's a uh, dramedy. He said, Your job is not to play the drama, it's only to play, uh, or rather, he said, Your job is not to play the comedy, only the drama. He said, You don't have to do mock ups, means you don't have to prepare anything with synth. All you have to do is come in, look at the show, go home, write it, and come in and record it with an orchestra. I said, Sounds good to me. The pilot, I did have to do a mock-up on because they needed to one, they needed to hear it, whether they liked it or not, and then they needed to cut their pilot to it. Uh, but the show itself, he didn't hear a note of it until the day we recorded it. We recorded with a 75-piece orchestra, which is about average for one of those shows. <clears throat> he likes big music. I mean, he does Family Guy with 50, 60 guys. The composers that he works with are really good composers. He he works on Family Guy. He works. Oh gosh, his name just flew out of my head now.
0: Walter Murphy and Ron Jones.
1: Yeah, Walter is a really he's a really nice guy and he's a really good writer. Walter did the Teddy Bear Ted with him. Joel did the Western with him. So he's got Joel McNeely. Joel can write really well. He's got John Debney. John's a you know terrific writer, and Andrew's a really good writer. So he's got you know he's got good people. He's got really great sensibilities. He's very supportive of musicians. He's supportive of music. Uh, he's a good musician himself. I, I tell you, he sings great.
0: So uh, would you consider ever writing another episode score for the show, or perhaps at least for the series finale, whenever that happens someday?
1: You know, if somebody asked me to do it, of course, you know, I think about doing it.
0: Did he ever ask you to write any more?
1: The rest of the show, as far as I know, is being done by these three guys. As far as I know, it'll probably go that way. It's, into its, it's starting its third season now. I think the only other writing that I'm planning to do on it, or that I'm expecting to do on it, is uh, now that it's going to Hulu, I think they're going to extend the main title. The show even may, might be a little bit longer. So he sent me a note a couple of weeks ago asking if I could extend the title. So I would expect I'll do that at some point. They just started recording. started filming the third season, so I'd, I don't know where it is. He, I don't know how he gets all his work done. He's so friggin' busy.
0: But he asked you to write an, a new version of the theme.
1: Yeah, just it, it would be basically the same theme. It would just be a little longer because they've got more time. I mean, he fought for a one-minute theme. for you know. If you look at television, how, long, how many one-minute themes do you find these days? It's pretty rare. Yeah, pretty rare. So this one has an old kind of theme, old meaning this is the way we used to do themes, bring people in from the kitchen when they're, they're at the refrigerator, uh, get the theme so everybody hears it and they know about the show. And if you play the theme, they say, oh, that's the horrible, you know, things like that.
0: I'm pleased that the other composers on that have continued using your theme throughout their
1: works. Yeah, so am I. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I hope sometime you get a chance to, to write another episode score for it, maybe for a special occasion or something.
1: You know, I'll tell you, I mean, honestly, the truth is I've never known from one week to the next with, I, I don't know, with ha- hardly any exceptions, what I was going to be doing the next week. I mean, m- people would say, oh, what's your next movie? I'm going, I don't know. Uh, are you going to be working on a TV show? I don't know. Um, except when I was doing TV and I was working consistently on Quincy and Dallas and things like that, I knew those jobs would be coming up. But when, I wasn't always sure. Uh, in the last 15, 20 years, who knows? I mean, things come up. And right now I've got so much to do. Uh, I'm not sitting around with my finger at my nose wondering, you know, when the next job's coming. I've got plenty to do, and I'm really happy doing it.
0: Is that the concert hall writing what you're most occupied with?
1: Yeah, I've got I've got a lot of stuff to do. So in fact, as soon as we finish this call, I'm going down and working on the uh, on trying to correct the, the stuff that I found last night.
0: Oh gosh! So did you take any sort of Star Trekky inspiration for that Orville theme, or? You'd had some sci-fi experience before on Lost in Space. I was just wondering, you know, what did you, what were you channeling when you wrote that?
1: I can. This is another thing with Seth. Seth did the temp track. You'd see the picture with the temp track that he chose himself and he put in himself. I mean, it's this is where I say, I mean, this guy is a multitasker, which is a nice way of saying he maybe works too much. But I mean, he he works a lot, but he knows all this stuff, and so he would play the scene with the music in it, and he said, "Look, I'm just putting this in here to show you." dramatically the feeling of the scene, how I see it. He said, the music is nothing that you have to follow. I'm not saying use this, do this, do that, do whatever you like, but this is the dramatic tone, this is the tone of the scene that I feel. I said in that way it was very helpful, so I'd listen to it, and it was, always made sense. So I'd go off and do what I wanted to do in my own way. So he wasn't kind of like, I really like this temp track, and you gotta do something that sounds just like it, but we can't get sued, you know? It wasn't one of those things at all. Very, very sensible. You know, I think because he's a, well, a lot of people you work with are creative guys. He Maybe because he's a musician, I don't know what it is, but I think he understands what people do. He's got a lot of friends who are musicians, and he's very supportive. There are a lot of guys that he works with. Like, if he goes out and he, and he does a weekend on the road, he'll take a group with him who he's very close to. Again, I mean, I, he's just, he, I think he's just great to work with. So, he, and he always has interesting things to do. He's got a weird sense of humor. That's kind of obvious from looking at the shows.
0: What were some of the temp tracks? Did he use Lost in Space? Did he, the opening sequence kind of is similar to Star Trek Voyager, which Jerry scored that opening sequence, but your music is maybe more lively than that, so.
1: The opening sequence, I think, is based on the, um, on the theme. A lot of it was my music. Some of it was from Star, uh, that show I did, <laughs> that you just talked about. Uh, Lost in Space? Lost in Space. Some the film. Lost in Space. See, he has albums and all these things. Mm-hmm. Some of it was from that. Some of it was from Spaceship Earth, a Disney theme park thing. <clears throat> Some of it was from Jerry's Star Trek. I think there were two or three cues from that. They were all very similar in style.
0: But none of your music sounds like you're really imitating anything. It's very much in your voice, so you were able to kind of filter it.
1: Good. I'm, glad, I'm always glad to hear that because my kids could always tell that it was my music.
0: You have a pretty distinctive style.
1: The only time, any time that ever turned against me was years ago. I was working on Quincy. I was the, I was the main composer on Quincy. I think I did four out of the five years. And at the end of the season, they kept one show that was really an awful show. They just knew that it had not turned out well, so they didn't want to show it until they knew that they were going to go for another season. So they put this show on, they gave me the show, and it was really awful. I mean, and so I thought, okay, this show is so awful, nothing I do is going to hurt it. So this is the time to experiment. So I thought, I'm going to do this in my great Bernard Herman style, channeling Jerry and Herman. I thought, I'm going to do this with six bassoons and six trombones and blah, blah. You know, I never worked with bassoons. Okay, so I got to the session, and as soon as I played the first cue, I realized I didn't know bassoons very well. The sound of it was a lot weaker than what I thought. I thought they were more like trombones, but just a little softer, you know? I didn't realize that they were really the weakest instrument in the orchestra. They were the easiest instrument to cover up. And everything that they played was, to me, a disaster. I mean, I thought it was like the biggest disaster I'd ever had. Every cue was just as bad as the one before. I mean, it was just horrible, right? Right. Years later, the bassoon players would tell me, you remember that show you did for Quincy? God, that was great. You know, you had something like 18 bassoons, and it was so interesting, and all these creative things. Everybody else thought it was really creative, but because it wasn't what I thought. At the time, I thought I had been a disaster. So a couple of days later, it's on the air, and my daughter, my youngest girl, was about five, six years old, and I turned the show on just to see if it was as bad as I thought it was on the air, and it played for a few minutes, and then my daughter said to me, gee, Daddy, that music's not very good, is it? (laughs) And I thought, oh, gee, look at that, even a five-year-old knows how bad it was. Actually, the score turned out to be okay, but at the time, I just thought it was a disaster. You know, you don't want to be too subjective as a composer, because you don't win.
0: <laughs> there was some other interview where you talked about a box set being produced of your scores for the Disney rides and attractions. Yeah. And I think Roger at Entrada indicated they were holding off releasing it until everything you'd composed for Disney was completed. <laughs> Does that mean you're still doing more
1: works for them, and they're just hoping that you know we we all are wondering what's happening on that thing it was about ready to get released several months ago and then i did the um the latest soaring about a year ago then they decided well why don't we have that one on there too so i actually i just heard from roger the other day i'd asked him about that album because everybody asked me about when's that coming out as far as we know it's still you know it's still there it's just a matter of them releasing it there should be about three three or four cds it's got all the theme park music i've done.
0: I thought maybe they were waiting to make sure you weren't just going to compose yet another Disney project for the theme parks or something.
1: No, the the last Disney project kind of did them in because it kind of stopped the process and they had to include it. So I think that's all been done, and now we're just waiting for it to happen. So I'm still hopeful it will happen while I'm still alive.
0: Well, well, hopefully you'll be alive for much longer. <laughs> but was there any thought of maybe uh, Jerry's soaring music, sharing space with yours? I know it's the ride score of his has already been released, but he wrote some music from before the attraction and after the attraction as you're a- exiting it. And I thought that might be neat if he was like included as an addendum since you were adapting his theme.
1: If that's so, I don't know about it. What you're talking about, the pre-show and the, uh, what they call the fill and spill. The fill is when People walk into the room and the spill is when they walk out, Right, which he would have done. I, and actually, I haven't heard about that. I, I know that on, my, on this one, we would probably include the pre-show, uh, like I did a pre-show also for Epcot, I think. I did a couple of pre-shows. Jerry would be represented in whatever, how I used the theme in the new one. So, I mean, very much Jerry's, the way I dealt with it was, for the most part, in the big moments, um, the way Jerry would have dealt with it. It was basically referencing his score. Um, where I had to change it. Like in the pre-show, his theme actually never had an ending. So I had to make up an ending. So his tune begins as him and then it ends as me. But I don't think anybody, unless they were really paying close attention, would even notice that.
0: But for your Soren work, the plan is to include both the, the fill and the spill music, as you put it?
1: I think so. Yeah. I think that's neat. everything. In it, yeah. It was nice recording.
0: So just to kind of close up our conversation, I thought I'd ask you, you know, if you didn't bring them up already, what are your personal favorite works of Jerry's? And what do you feel is kind of unique and timeless about his music?
1: Well, off the top of my head, my two favorite scores of Jerry are probably Chinatown and Magic, because I think the theme to Magic is just so wonderful. And even after many years of listening to it, I listen to it, and I think, no, that's, that's a really good theme. Both of them are amazing.
0: That must be the most praised score of his I've heard from other professionals because that's also a favorite of david newman and leonard slatkin magic magic is the score they both brought up
1: it's it's incredible i mean the, the main title is just beautiful i asked the harmonica player tommy morgan i said how do you write the harmonica stuff because it's so it's so distinctive it comes in playing all the weird stuff you know he says well it was just blow draw nothing special C G C G, you know or c d minor whatever i said really nothing no weird chords no i said he just put it in a way that it always sounded discordant you know I mean, it was brilliant how simple it was, but the tune itself isn't simple, and the um, the voicings are so beautiful. I mean, really, the guy—anyway, those are those are the two that come to mind. Um, if I had to sit and think about it, I would probably think of other scores that, that I thought were really wonderful, but those two really come out as being very creative and sort of essentially what Jerry does. The, the way he dealt with the orchestra in um, Chinatown, I've, I've seen the scores to that one, and I, can, I know what he's done, and it's exciting. To look at it and see how he developed things and how he kind of fooled you. I was, for one thing, I thought he used harpsichords, and it wasn't harpsichords, it was plucked piano strings, you know. Uh, The way he figured it out was just, you know, very clever and, and very easy to do in a recording setup. So He had four pianos. Like, what do you do with four pianos? Well, he figured it out. He had three or four harps. What do you do with that? He figured it out. I think what he'd be remembered for primarily is his creativity and his, um, I think John referred to him as being like a chameleon, so like a musical chameleon. He could write so many styles convincingly, and he could use them in a way that worked for the film. It wasn't like showing off. Some people like to show off how much they've learned over the years. He, I think that he always thought of his job seriously as being one to help the film so that if he decided to do something in a style, I think the reason he would go to a style was to give a dressing like a clothing or an outfit or a suit or something like that to the film to keep it consistent. He would write themes that he would adapt in the movie, sometimes just a phrase or two at the time, uh, that would carry through and be the basis of some other cue so that he could keep the integrity of the score whole. And I, I think he would probably be remembered as much for his craftsmanship as for anything else. I think what he's underestimated for is for his for his melodic ability and for his great thematic writing which again was put in a second place position to the film. I don't think that he was like he wasn't a songwriter like Hank Mancini who would just write this great tune and let it you know let it be the voice of the film. Jerry would do it as a background thing so that it could kind of seep into you and, and uh, get you more acquainted with the movie. I think he was just a, a fabulous fabulous musician, uh, really well Trained composer who really knew his craft very well, and somebody who you could admire, and know that it uh, wasn't that, that the admiration wasn't going to be disappointing. Well,
0: thank you so much for your time and speaking with me. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I think this will be a, a nice listen for our audience.
1: Thanks. Well, thank you. It's certainly going to be long enough. <laughs>